0: Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Uh,
1: Philippians 3:12 to through chapter 4, verse 1. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgiving what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Jesus in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will, will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction— Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame, with mind set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. This is the word of God.
0: Check, check, check. There we go. This is a power packed uh, few verses of scripture in which the apostle Paul gives us a metaphor to reimagine our life. And the metaphor is running a race. So he's asking us to think of ourselves as runners. For a few of us, a very few of us in the room, that's an exciting metaphor. Anybody get excited about running a race? Marissa, Clarissa, I've been seeing you post 5Ks on Facebook like every 48 hours or something. Iron Woman Award over there. For a lot of us, that's a terrifying metaphor, but I hope that we'll be excited by the end of today. Because what Paul is talking to us about is that in the Christian life, we run from victory. Jesus already won the victory. Isn't that great? But that doesn't mean that we just sit back and chill. He's calling us for strenuous effort. This... Text uses words like press on, strive, to talk about making a strenuous effort to reach the goal that God has invited us to. We see the metaphor summarized in verses 13 and 14 especially. If you could look with me, I'm going to start in the middle of verse 13 here. Paul says, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind. So imagine you're running a race. You don't want to look back. If you look back while you're running a race, for one thing, you might trip and fall. That would be bad. But second of all, it slows you down. You lose momentum. So forgetting what lies behind. And then he says, straining forward to what lies ahead. So that's strenuous language. It's like work hard, run hard, press yourself to your limits. Verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize Of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And it's that word prize that tips us off. He's especially thinking about an athletic competition, a race that that we're running. Now, Paul is painting for us here a word picture. And he could only use words, but I have PowerPoint. So I'm going to give you a picture picture on the screen. As a matter of fact, I'm going to give you four pictures. So you can just pick whichever one you want to relate to. For the visual people in the room. If you happen to listen to the podcast, you just got to use your imagination or maybe Google to find your own picture. But first, let me put on the screen some marathon runners. These guys are intense, aren't they? These are elite level, Olympic level runners. And you can only see three of them because everybody else is way behind them. And they're pushing each other towards excellence. They're pushing each other to work hard. If you can see their faces, every one of them looks intensely focused. They're straining towards the goal. They're pressing forward. Here's another picture of a, uh, another marathon runner. This is someone maybe that some of us could relate to a little bit more because she is not an Olympian. This is a random person that I found in a public domain photo, but look how focused she is. And she's in front of her little pack. I assume there's a lot of other people in front of her, but that's all right, because in this race, we're just trying to finish. We're just trying to get to Jesus, right? And she's uh, focused. She's intent. She's looking ahead, not looking behind. But as I was reflecting on this, not only is it true that thinking of life or of the Christian life in particular as a race, it's not a sprint. I also thought it's really not even a marathon. It's more like a ultra, super, mega Ironman marathon. It's a really long journey. Which is why when Paul repeatedly uses this metaphor of run the race, he so often talks about perseverance. Don't give up. Don't quit because it's a long race. It's a long journey, which means you might not even be running like that the whole time. And the race Paul is talking about, sometimes you're crawling. Sometimes you're climbing up a cliff. Sometimes you're walking. Actually, sometimes it's like there's a storm in your face trying to blow you backward. And you're just trying to stand firm in the Lord, which is how this passage ends, isn't it? Stand firm in the Lord. And so I've got some pictures of a little bit longer journey to put on your screen. Here's some people um, who are walking a journey of hundreds of miles in the Camino del Santiago. And they're on a pilgrimage together. This is a prayer pilgrimage, a sacred journey in which they've got their backpacks loaded up, they've got their walking sticks, and uh, they're, they're on a journey of prayer and spiritual transformation. And they're in this together to support each other and to encourage each other as they try and finish this pilgrimage together. Doesn't that sound like the Christian life? Or, some of you are familiar with John Bunyan's famous story, The Pilgrim's Progress. And I've got an image of that. Um, you remember this story? The main character's name's Christian. And he leaves the behind the city of destruction, and he doesn't look back, forget what's behind, and he's pressing on to the celestial city. It's an allegory and, and John Bunyan's not trying to be sneaky. I'm leaving behind sin. I'm running towards Christ. And you can see him and his companion here almost towards the end of the journey, straining to the finish line to get to the celestial city. So you can pick any of those four images, whichever one does it for you and imagine yourself. Can you do that? I want you to keep the image in your brain For the rest of this time. Now, as we think about the race image that Paul is using here, the first question we have to ask is what are we racing towards? What's the finish line? What's the destination? Now, we see that, we've read it already in that rich phrase from verse 14. I press on toward the goal for the prize of, and here it is, this is the finish line. Here's the prize the upward call of God. In Christ Jesus, everybody say the upward call of God, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So now the question is, what does that mean? What does it mean? The upward call of God in Christ Jesus, God is inviting us to himself. I mean, one simple way to answer that is we're running towards God himself and we're running towards Jesus, the son of God, the image of the invisible God. We're running towards God himself. Why? Philippians is a book all about joy, isn't it? Philippians chapter 3 started with this exhortation, Rejoice in the Lord. Philippians chapter 4 is going to begin once again with the repeated exhortation, Rejoice in the Lord. I will say it again. Rejoice. It's a book about joy. So everybody say rejoice. But what Chauncey preached to us about last week is this Paul wants us to understand a lot of the things that people do to make themselves joyful don't work anybody ever had the life experience of giving all of your time and all your heart and all your energy to something that you thought was going to make you happy and then you achieved it and it didn't make you happy that was called high school for me (laughs) And, uh, I, except for I didn't always necessarily achieve what I was going for, but even when I did, there was still a yearning in my soul. And seriously, during that time period, God used this book of Philippians to wake me up because it's like, John Mark, you're striving for something. Maybe you want to have academic success or maybe you want to have athletic success, but really you just want to be cool so that people will like you. You want to be loved. You want to be accepted. You want to feel valuable, but When I lost my athletic event or got beat in my academic meet, I felt empty and discouraged. And then guess what? Even when I won, I wasn't satisfied. So Paul was saying this last week, that's just my little high school existential crisis. I I had one every 15 minutes throughout that whole period of my life. But all of you know what I'm talking about. That we can live for stuff that won't satisfy. So last week, Pastor Chauncey taught us and said... Hey, having the right family won't make you happy. Getting the right education won't make you happy. Um, Achieving success, gaining influence, being popular won't give you lasting joy. It might make you happy for a little while, but we're talking about deep, lasting joy. If you want deep, lasting joy, what you need is to know Jesus Christ. Only Christ himself can satisfy. What, What Scripture teaches us is that all the good stuff in life... ...that we enjoy, that gives us real joy, even little tastes of real joy, is from God. And it's good because it's from God and it points us back towards God. But God is the source. And only God can satisfy us forever. uh, One of the frequent metaphors sometimes in Scripture and then often in the Christian theological tradition is that... ...life is filled with joys and sorrows, but those joys are coming down to us from a source... And the source is God himself. And they talk about all the gifts of creation as like a river. I was thinking about that this w- weekend because my son had a birthday party. And how do you have a birthday party? He had a birthday. How do you have a birthday party in a pandemic? So we just took a friend and went to the river, uh, the Blue River in Oklahoma. So wh- where we went to go swim was in Tishmingo, Oklahoma. But the source of the Blue River is some miles from there. I think it's Murray County, Oklahoma. And it's a spring This is a nice river because it's the last one in Oklahoma that goes from its natural spring all the way to the Red River. It's its ultimate destination without any man-made dams or anything. So it was nice, cool, uh, relatively clear, refreshing water. And we were just kind of floating in the stream or swimming in the stream or banging our knees into rocks or whatever we were doing in the river. Having a good time. Um, But all of that good, refreshing water came from somewhere. It came from a stream. I mean, excuse me, the stream came from a spring The source. And as I was reflecting on that, all this goodness came from that spring. I thought about that metaphor of scripture once again. God is the source. So if you enjoy any good thing in life, it's good because it's from God. And it's good because it's a little bit like God. And it's sent to you from God as a gift to tell you, um, come to me so that I can satisfy you forever. Which is why none of these little gifts can satisfy us. So we can take a little poll. Anybody enjoy friendship? Good friendships. Got, got a, about 95% of us, I think, enjoy good friendships. Well, what I'm saying is good friendship is good because it's a little bit like God. But even the best friendship can't satisfy your soul forever. You've got to go to God for that. And we can just go down the list. What makes you happy? Anybody enjoy a good meal? 100% on the good meal. 95 on friendship. Loving relationships. Anybody enjoy doing creative work that makes the world better? Okay, we're getting some good buy-in on that one too. All that stuff is good because it's from God and it's a little bit like God, but those things in themselves cannot satisfy us forever. What can satisfy you forever? The upward call of God in Christ Jesus. God is inviting you towards Himself, which means what we're talking about is running towards Jesus, but running towards Jesus means running towards joy. Running towards life. Running towards freedom. If you want to be happy, Paul's saying, you've got to learn to run the race. Everybody say, race towards joy. That's what we're talking about today. Now, if we want to think about how do you do this, how does it work, there's a lot that we can say, but I'd like to briefly point out that in this passage of Scripture, Paul's saying, this metaphor of the race is designed to give you a mature frame of mind. As a matter of fact, look down at verse 15. Right after he gave us that metaphor, he says, let those of you who are mature think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. I always thought that was a bold statement. (laughs) Agree with me. And if you don't, God will show you that I'm right about this, too. But what Paul's saying is thinking of of yourself as running this race towards Jesus, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward towards what lies ahead is a mature Christian mindset. If you don't think that way, you're immature. So Paul's inviting us to maturity. He's inviting us to Christian wisdom. And this metaphor is here to do that. And one of the things the metaphor teaches us is that the gospel of Jesus Christ radically reorients the way that we think about our past, our present, and our future. Okay, in the text he says about our present Hold fast to what you've already obtained. Hold fast to what you've already obtained. Which means, if you're running a race, and you're doing great, and you're in first place, but you're only halfway through the race, don't stop now. It's not over. Being in first place, halfway through the race, it does not mean you have won the race. Speaking of my high school, not quite victories. I was in first place in a lot of track races at the halfway point. <laughs> but it doesn't matter who's in first place at the halfway point. Matters who's in first place at the end. Finish the race. But what you don't want to do is get to that halfway point. You've run so hard. You've worked so hard. And now you quit and be satisfied. So Paul says, hold fast to what you've already obtained. That's about the present. About the past, we already talked about. He says, forget what's behind. And about the future. He says a lot of things about the future in the text. He's wanting to, to set our hopes fully on the grace of God that's going to be revealed when Jesus Christ returns. And... It's important, though, for us to understand what this text repeatedly makes clear that when we talk about Christian hope, what we're not saying is everybody sit back and relax and chill because one day God's going to fix everything. When Paul talks about hope, he's saying Jesus is going to come back. Therefore, strive toward joy, press on toward joy. In other words, hope motivates us to go with all the strength that we have towards God. So what I want to do with most of of our last few minutes studying this text is go into a little bit more depth of what is Paul saying to us about how we think about our Christian life, past, present, and future. First, let's talk about the present. Everybody say, the present. Verse 16, I alluded to a moment ago, says this, Only let us hold true to what we have attained. We've got this far on the race. Let's hold true to that. Now, what does Paul mean? There's two things in this statement that he says about our present as Christians. What's already true of us, which are precious. And he's telling us, hold fast to these. Now, I got to clarify from the beginning. What he's talking about is our identity in Christ. He's talking about what have we already received if we have trusted in Jesus. So anybody in the room or watching on the Internet, anybody who has turned from your sin to trust in Jesus Christ, you've been baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You're a Christian. You're a follower of Jesus. And the stuff I'm about to say is true of you. Now, there might be some people in the room or watching on the internet that you haven't done that. You're here. You're listening. You're watching because you're spiritually sinking. You're wanting to know the truth. And what I'm telling you right now is here's the good news that Christians call the gospel. No matter how messed up your life has been up to this point, no matter how much you're struggling right now, if today... You just, in your heart, say, I trust Jesus. I'm turning away from sin. I'm trusting to Jesus. And then you start on that journey of obedience, of following Christ. Everything that I'm about to say can become true of you. So this is powerful stuff. Identity in Christ. Two things Paul says about our identity in Christ. First one is right here in verse 12. Look look at the second half of verse 12. Paul says, I press on to make it my own. Uh, He's referring back to... Talking about the resurrection. You remember last week, Chauncey read us a part of this letter in which uh, Paul says, I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection, the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death so that I somehow can attain the resurrection of the dead. Now he says, I haven't already attained it. In other words, I haven't been resurrected in Christ yet. Jesus is transforming me, but He's not done yet. There's still more glory to come. So he says... I haven't yet obtained that, but then listen to what he says. I press it on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. I want you to underline those words in your bulletin or in your Bible. Think about those words, those are precious. Christ Jesus has made me his own. And actually, when it says he's made me his own, this is the same word you see me grasping with my hand here. Because this is the same word that Paul uses when he says he wants to grasp the prize at the end of the race. What he's saying effectively is Jesus already ran the race. Jesus already won the victory and his prize was me. So what we're trying, what we're not saying, what we're not saying today is... Work really hard at being a good person so that God will love you. That would be a recipe for disaster because we'll never be good enough. What we are saying is God already loves you in your broken state. God already loves you despite all your weakness and pain. And if you trust in Christ, Jesus grabs hold of you. He died on the cross for your sins. He rose again. From the grave so that anybody who trusts in Him is firmly in the arms of Jesus. He's holding tight to you. You're not running so that God will love you. God already loves you in Christ. And if you've trusted in Him, that love is now the energy which propels you to finish the race. So don't lose sight of that. Christ Jesus has taken hold of you. He initiated this relationship. And then skipping down a bit further, down towards the end of this passage, verse 20 Paul says our citizenship is in heaven. So there's two things about our present that Paul wants us to understand. First, Jesus has taken hold of us by grace. If you've trusted Christ, Jesus has already wrapped his arms around you. He's already holding you tight. He already loves you. You're secure in that love. If you haven't trusted Christ, you could do so today. And know that security for yourself. And the second thing is, because Jesus has grabbed hold of you, you are now a citizen of heaven. Now, this concept of citizen of citizenship in heaven is something we've talked about several times throughout the book of Philippians, but I'll just briefly review here. The, the Christians who lived in Philippi, uh, many of them were Roman citizens, and Philippi itself was a Roman colony. And some of those... People who have now become Christians had a pride, maybe a little bit of good civic pride, but also probably some unhelpful pride about the fact that they were Roman citizens in a Roman colony. And what it meant was we may live out here from their perspective on this outpost of civilization in this kind of semi-barbarian land, but... We have the privileges of Roman citizenship. If we get ourselves into trouble, the emperor is going to send his troops and come rescue us. And we've got the responsibility now of bringing the culture and the civilization of Rome to extend to this part of the world. Now, Paul is saying that's how you're used to thinking. But the gospel of Jesus Christ partially fulfills that desire and partially subverts it. The gospel of Jesus Christ subverts that because the kingdom of Jesus is radically different than the empire of Rome. Rome extended its borders largely through coercive economic and military power. That's not how it works in the kingdom of God. How did Jesus extend his kingdom? Well, Paul already answered the question for us in chapter 2. Jesus was in the form of God and yet he emptied himself and humility and self-giving love clothes himself with human weakness to give his life for us. So the kingdom of Jesus is not advanced through military and economic coercive power. It's advanced through love. So Paul is saying, I'm calling you to a different way of being. And your core identity, it's fine to be a Roman citizen. Paul himself was a Roman citizen and was happy about that. But your core identity is not that human, political, national affiliation. Your core identity is Jesus. And can I just say for us today, it's okay to love your country. It's okay to love your culture. But our core identity is none of that stuff. Our core identity is Jesus. But Paul is also saying, as a citizen of heaven, that yearning or that pride that you had in Rome is actually the, the deepest part of that is getting fulfilled because in fact, you are the outpost of the kingdom of heaven. You do have the privileges of being children of God and the hope of an inheritance with Christ and the new creation. And you do have the authority and the responsibility to extend the culture of heaven onto the earth by loving people radically like Jesus taught us to do. So when we think about our present, two things we need to remember. Everybody say, Jesus took hold of me. Everybody say, I'm a citizen of heaven. That's what we need to think about our, our present. What about the past? Well, we've already read it a couple times. When Paul describes the race, he says, I'm forgetting what's behind. Remember the determined look of all those people in all those pictures. They weren't looking back. They were looking ahead, forgetting what is behind. Now, I had fun trying to think through this phrase this week, because over the last several years, one of the things that has been standing out to me in my Bible study, is how often the Scriptures tell us to remember stuff. The Bible all the time says, remember, 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 don't forget, remember, remember, don't forget, remind your children, don't forget, don't let your children forget, remember, remember. And now here's Paul saying, forget. So I had to think about that. What does that mean? Now, the obvious implication of that is that there's a good, sacred, and holy kind of remembering And there's also a good, sacred, and holy kind of forgetting. There's a good, holy, sacred kind of remembering that if you remember this way, it brings blessing and joy to your life. And there's a good, holy, sacred kind of forgetting that if you forget this way, it brings blessing and joy to your life. The flip side is also true. There's an unholy, destructive kind of remembering that will keep you in chains. And there's an unholy, destructive kind of forgetting. So what we've got to do, if we're going to learn how to think about our past, how to run this race correctly, we've got to know how to remember rightly, and we've got to know how to forget rightly. So let's just talk about that briefly for a second. What is the right kind of remembering? Well, if we had lots more time than we do, we could spend hours going through all those scriptures talking about remember remember don't forget remind your children and basically what they're all saying is remember how God has shown his faithfulness to you remember the steadfast love of the Lord don't forget everything that Jesus has done for for you that's why when Christians come together so often we testify about God's faithfulness in your life anybody ever had God pay your bills Anybody ever been in a big mess that was totally your fault and God spared you of a lot of the consequences? Anybody a sinner who deserves judgment, but Jesus died on the cross for your sins? That's all of us. Anybody ever had somebody come share the gospel with you? Anybody experienced the sweetness and the encouragement from the Holy Spirit when you were down at different times in your life? All God's innumerable good gifts. And then we could think back about the stories of Scripture and God's faithfulness throughout history. And the text says, Don't forget God's track record of steadfast love and faithfulness. Remember, because the God who has been always faithful in the past will not fail you in the present or in the future. That's holy remembering. Unholy forgetting is the opposite of that. Unholy forgetting is what happens when, now I run into... A spiritual crisis or a financial crisis or whatever. And I think, everything's over. God has abandoned me. Scripture says, no, He didn't abandon you in the past. He won't abandon you now. Remember, remember, remember. Well, then what? what is this forgetting that Paul is talking about? The good forgetting. The holy, sacred forgetting that gives life. I think there's at least three things that Paul probably has in mind here. First one is this. Before we came to know Christ, we all had some... Strategies for getting ahead in life and for trying to achieve happiness that we're sinful and we're self-destructive. And Paul is saying, you've got a new identity. Don't do that anymore. So forget what you used to do. Forget your old way of life. Don't cheat. That will not satisfy you. Leave it behind. Think about how many times Peter and Paul in their letters say, that old stuff you used to do, you were a slave. Don't do it anymore. So if there's anybody in the room that you, before you came to know Christ, you had this way of trying to self-medicate or trying to find satisfaction through your addiction to work or your addiction to sex, or your addiction to some sort of substance that made you feel better, or whatever it may be, through pleasing people, frantically working hard to try and achieve success, whatever it is. Paul says, forget that stuff. It didn't work in the past, and it won't work in the future. That's one kind of holy forgetting. A second kind of holy forgetting is, don't um, just rest on the laurels of your past spiritual fruitfulness and your past spiritual lessons. The worst thing that we could do as Christians is to be like, I already know a lot about the Bible, and I'm pretty godly. Now let's chill till heaven. What Proverbs says, if you see a man who's wise in his own eyes, there's more hope for a fool than for him. And if you go read what Proverbs says about a fool, it sounds like there's about a 0% chance of success for the fool. So the guy who's wise in his own eyes, that's like a negative something percent chance of success. Right? Mature people, in other words, don't necessarily feel very mature. I, I remember... Um, A few years back, one of my spiritual heroes, John Perkins, came to town. He just turned, I think, 90 recently, but at this time he was like 84 or 85, and his his health was failing. You could tell he'd been beat up a lot by life. Godly man, an evangelist, a disciple maker, a civil rights leader, and uh, he was talking to a group of leaders in Oklahoma City, and I was just soaking it up, oozing with admiration because... I've admired him forever. And then this godly veteran saint who we were all sitting at his feet thinking like, here's spiritual master Christian Yoda, like we're getting to sit at the feet of this godly example. He said, as I get older, I'm more and more aware of my own sin. And I'm more aware of how easily I can hurt other people. And I just want to stay close to the cross. What we're saying here is mature people don't think hey, I've grown a lot, I've learned a lot, I've done good things in the past, I'm good. They think, no, there's a holy dissatisfaction. I want more of Jesus. I want to get closer to Jesus than than where I am right now. Here's the third thing I think Paul means when he's talking about holy forgetting. And this is one that was very meaningful for this for me this week. I think he means, do not let the shame of your past failures control you. Do not let the shame of your past failures or of what other people have done to you. Just don't let the shame of the past control you. That's a liberating word I need to hear every day. Anybody else need that? Don't let the shame of your past control you. If you're in Christ, Jesus has taken hold of you. If you're in Christ, you're a citizen of heaven. Past failures, past pain doesn't have to control you. Now, I was thinking about how does this work? Because it's like, okay, I would like to forget all my past failures... And often during the day, my mind is in the right place, and then I lay in my bed at night, and it's like replaying old tapes of all my past failures, and I feel very ashamed. I'm sure none of you can relate to that. Uh, but I do it sometimes. And as I was thinking about that, it just made me think, you know, I don't think Paul means that we have to do like a men in black flash the light in your eyes, and you, 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 you know, the knowledge of all your past mistakes is gone. What I think he's saying is, now we've got to view our past through the lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why do I think that? Because if you read the book of Acts and the letters of Paul, Paul, it's almost like he relishes telling the story of how desperately he deserved judgment before Jesus found him. Over and over, he says, I persecuted the church. I was zealous, but not according to knowledge. I was the chief of sinners. But when he tells that story, he's not wallowing in shame. He's actually celebrating God's mercy and grace in his life. He says, I was the chief of sinners, but God chose me so that he could put his radical grace on display in my life. In other words, Paul says, here's how you view the bad stuff from your past. You remember, I'm running a race. And behind me on this course were some times that I didn't, I wasn't just crawling. I like fell into a pit. And there was like scorpions in the pit. It was a bad pit. And what happened was Jesus came down in the pit with me and pulled me out of there. And then this other time I tumbled down a hill. And then this other time I just sinned and I got off course and I ran the wrong direction for five years. But every time I messed up. Every time I hurt myself or I hurt somebody else or somebody else hurt me, Jesus chased me down and picked me up and carried me when I needed to and brought me back on course. And if He's done that every time between my birth and now, He's not going to lead me in the next hole I fall into. So Paul is saying, forget what's behind. View your past through the lens of the gospel. I'm almost out of time, but we've got to talk about the future for just a second. The, the clearest statement Paul makes about the Christian future comes here at the end of our text, verse twenty one. How'd I get over to Colossians? Okay, here we go. Verse twenty one. All right, let's start back in verse twenty. Our citizenship is in heaven. We already read that. And now Paul says, From it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's let's pause there for a second. When we when Christians today in our culture talk about heaven. We often think about that's the place that we want to go to. That's the ultimate destination. But what Paul actually says right here is that's where Jesus is and the place from which he's coming to us. Okay. And if you read the Bible, when you get to the end of the book, the end of the story at the end of the book of Revelation is not we get zapped out of this created reality to go to a floaty place called heaven. It's actually that the heavenly city comes down to a new creation and heaven and earth become one. And we have resurrected glorified bodies to live with Christ and all human culture is purged and refined and renewed. What we're talking about is a new heavens and a new earth when Jesus returns. So Paul says, we are citizens of heaven. Heaven is the realm of God's authority, God's reign, God's kingdom. And it's breaking into earth. So Paul says, while we're running towards Jesus, Jesus is getting ready to come back to us. And what's he going to do when he comes back? That's verse 21. The Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. The, the great Christian hope isn't primarily the immortality of the soul. It's the resurrection of the body. Which means not only... It's true. It's true. I want to be clear. Back in Philippians chapter 1, Paul says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And then he goes on to say, I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. Which means loved ones that we know who trusted Jesus and have died, they are with Christ. They're in the presence of God. We could say they're in heaven enjoying God But in the book of Revelation, the loved ones who are experiencing that bliss, that joy beyond anything we can imagine are actually crying out, how long, oh Lord? They're still waiting for something. And what they're waiting for is when Jesus comes back and resurrects his saints so that every person who's trusted in him, not only are our souls made perfect, but our bodies are made perfect. Doesn't a body that can never get sick sick or die sound great in the year of our Lord 2020? No more pandemics, no more sickness, no more death. Our bodies are going to be transformed to be like his glorious body. And then he says that the power of resurrection that's going to be at work in us is the same power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Now, those, that's some big words. Everybody say all things. In short, what that means is Jesus is going to renew all of creation. So if you just look around at God's world right now, there's a lot of messed up stuff and all that's going to be gone. All the sickness and the death and the racism and the alienation and the shame and the guilt and the trauma and the abuse. It's all gone. Jesus is going to wipe every tear from every eye. All that stuff is gone. But if you look around the world, there's beauty everywhere. There's life everywhere. There's there's love everywhere. All of that stuff is not just going to be thrown away. It's going to be redeemed and it's going to be brought to its The fulfillment of the purpose for which God created it so that everything good and beautiful and just and true about the world will be brought to the extreme perfection, which God has always intended and which he spoke about through the prophets who says the whole world will be filled with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. What Paul is saying, your future Is Jesus making heaven and earth one so that your body is resurrected, your soul is perfected, and all creation is renewed? Now, what is that supposed to do for you? Let's look back at the beginning of our passage. Let's look again at verse 13, 14, where we started. I do not consider that I have made it my own. (laughs) We're definitely not there yet. All that stuff we just talked about, we haven't arrived there. But he says, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind And straining forward, straining toward, uh, excuse me, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize. Hope here motivates us for strenuous effort, strenuous action. Jesus has already taken hold of me. He's already covered my past with his grace. He's already promised that I'm going to share with him in a new creation. Therefore, I struggle, I strive with everything in my being. I work hard to pursue Christ. Now, I want to finish today by just talking real briefly about how do we put this into practice in our lives? How do we put it into practice in our lives? How how do you strain towards this prize? What does it look like? Well, Paul does give us one little clue here in the text. He's actually gives us a lot of clues. But one that I haven't mentioned yet is look at verse 17. He says, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. And then he contrasts that by saying, don't walk according to all the foolish people who just live for their selfish appetites. But what Paul is saying here is if you want to run this race, Look at some of the saints who have gone before you. You need role models. You need mentors in your life. In this sermon, friends, and in, if I had your full attention for a thousand sermons, I couldn't give you everything that you need to know how to walk with Christ. Because Christian maturity isn't just about understanding information. It's about catching a way of life. It's about finding role models and mentors who can help us learn how to pray, learn how to feast on the scriptures, learn how to love our enemies, learn how to share the gospel, learn how to start seeing all of life as an opportunity to know Jesus and to glorify Jesus. So part of what it's saying here is you need role models, you need mentors. But I want to finish uh, my time with you today with this last little thought. Running the race towards joy is not just something that we do like when we come together on Sunday mornings or at community group. It's an everyday thing. And it's not just that part of your day in which you sit down and read your Bible and pray and have your coffee. Running towards Jesus is a metaphor for all of life. So what it means is, okay, I'm looking at the row of people that came with me and you're a bunch of school age people. Isaiah, Infinity, Mondo, Elijah, Abigail, all the other school age kids in here. When you go to school, this is an opportunity to walk with Jesus and to show people the beauty and goodness of Jesus by honoring everybody there. So what this could look like for you guys would be, how do you treat the least popular kid in your class? Do you honor the image of God in that person? Do you treat him with love like Jesus has treated you? This could be about our families, friends. In the midst of this pandemic, we're seeing surges of domestic abuse. We're seeing huge spikes of divorce. A lot of weak foundations and families are being revealed. And if you're here and you're in a family, I just want to say, sometimes the most radical thing that you can do to change the world is just like go home and love your spouse and children. Some of us, it means at work. Remember a few weeks ago, Chauncey was preaching and Paul said, um, do everything without complaining or arguing and you'll shine like stars in a dark place. It's amazing. He doesn't even say you have to love people, love the poor radically like Mother Teresa for 50 years. He just said, just don't complain at work and you'll shine like a star. Why? Because every workplace in the world is filled with gossip and slander and complaining, especially right now, and especially because there's a boss somewhere or a manager or a pastor who tells you to do annoying things about the pandemic, and you're already very stressed out, right? And so everybody's complaining, and everybody's arguing about it, and everybody's frustrated. And Paul says, you go there and you be thankful and joyful and generous, and you'll shine the light of Christ. What I'm trying to say is... In every area of our lives, we have an opportunity to run toward Jesus and to show the beauty of who he is. But it all starts with remembering the gospel, what he has done for us. So right now, we're going to have an opportunity to remember that truth and remind ourselves of the gospel as we take the Lord's Supper. Would you stand with me? And let's let's take a second to pray together and prepare our hearts. Our Father in heaven, we love you. We thank you for first loving us. Jesus, we thank you for taking hold of us by grace. We thank you that every time we fell into a pit or ran away from you, you got in the pit with us. You chased us down and brought us back on course. And I just pray that even right now and in the moments to come as we take the Lord's Supper, that your Holy Spirit would do in us a work which I could never do and no human being could ever do which is that you would light a flame of holy love in our hearts for Jesus Christ. For every person in this room, no matter how young or old we are, let there be a passion to know Jesus, to run hard after Jesus. And let the truth of your grace wash over our minds, so that as we think about our past, our present, or our future, shame and anxiety don't have control. What we see is Jesus, 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 grace, grace, grace. And that gives us energy to keep us running. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.